In a scene from the classic novel and movie about the Civil War era, Gone with the Wind, Gerald O'Hara tells his daughter Scarlett, the land is the only thing in the world worth looking for, worth fighting for, worth dying for, because it's the only thing that lasts. The irony is that land does not always last. And that was alarmingly obvious in the 1930s when the novel and the movie were written and filmed. That decade was the era of the Dust Bowl, when a great deal of U.S. farmland was being degraded by soil erosion, and a huge amount of soil was quite literally gone with the wind. Soil is a crucially and potentially depleted resource, not just for agriculture that feeds us, but also for all land-based ecosystems. And soil isn't just dirt. It's so much more than a physical mix of sand and silt and clay and organic matter. It's better described as the living skin of the earth. Soil is home to a diverse community of living organisms that are fed directly or indirectly by the plants or crops that grow there. In turn, many of those soil inhabitants are beneficial to the plants and crops. Good guys, as it were. But like the cast of characters in Gone with the Wind or any compelling stories, there can also be bad guys living in soils. It can harbor some pretty nasty biological challenges for farmers. And that's the real dirt on soil. In this episode of Pop Agriculture, we're going to talk about some of the ways that farmers deal with that dark side of soil. So who are the bad guy characters when it comes to soil? Well, they fall into several categories. There are some mammals, like moles and gophers, that live most of their lives underground, and they can definitely mess with plants. There are also insects, like the grub stage of beetles, that live in soil and eat plants. A less familiar kind of animal is a class of tiny little roundworms called nematodes that are almost microscopic. Now, most nematodes are harmless to plants and just live off of microbes in the soil. But there are certain kinds of nematodes that have a specialized needle-like stylet that allows them to poke into plant roots and suck out food. Some of the nematodes just poke a root and eat until that spot is too damaged and then move on. Another kind induces the root to form a gall that becomes a long-term feeding site for a female as she cranks out eggs. Nematodes in soils can cause a lot of damage to crops, and they're not at all easy to control. There are also a lot of fungi that live in soils and can infect plants. When plants are just germinating, there are several fungi that can cause what we call damping off, which means that the young seedlings get overwhelmed by the fungus and die. There are other soil fungi that infect the plant by invading the roots and then spread to the rest of the plant through its plumbing, called its xylem. There are other fungi that rot the roots of plants, either stunting them or sometimes killing them completely. So there are lots of potential bad guys that can be in the soil, and because they're underground, they're hard to control. Unlike an insect crawling around on a plant or a fungus that lands on a leaf, pests that attacks the plant underground isn't accessible to many kinds of control steps. They're hidden by and protected by the soil. So what do farmers do if their crop ends up with a soil pest problem? Well, there are a lot of different strategies depending on the crop and the pest. Probably the most radical strategy is to avoid soil completely. 
bring the crop into a greenhouse and grow it hydroponically on a non-soil substrate like rock wool or core, which is ground-up coconut hulls. There was recently a lot of controversy when the National Organic Standards Board narrowly voted to allow hydroponic greenhouse-grown crops to be certified as organic. Organic purists see that as anathema to their core principles because the organic movement started with a big focus on healthy soils. The truth is that plants can do quite well without soil, as long as they get the water, air, and nutrients that their roots require. But it costs a great deal of money to set up a greenhouse growing system. But once it's up and running, it can be remarkably productive and super efficient in terms of water use. In recent years, there's also been a lot of interest in vertical farming, where plants are grown in layers with lights on them that come from highly efficient LEDs that supply only the specific wavelengths of light that plants actually use. Well, greenhouse, hydroponic, or non-soil growing will never be practical for a great many crops, but it can be a great way to produce certain specialty items like tomatoes and bell peppers and some lettuce. If a greenhouse grower is careful, they can prevent pests from ever getting into their system. And if something does accidentally get in, they could start over with a clean growing material. To go to the other extreme, probably the most common solution to a soil pest problem is something called crop rotation. Now, in many cases, soil pests are specific to a specific crop. If the farmer changes which crop is being grown from season to season, Specific pest populations may decline because they can't feed on their favorite host. So for some pests, it can work to just grow each main crop that the farmer wants to grow every other year. For other situations, the rotation might need to be longer. For instance, potatoes are a crop that can get hammered by various soil pests. And it might be necessary to avoid growing potatoes in a given field for three years or even longer. There's a kind of variation on crop rotation that is a particularly cool strategy called a trap crop. So for instance, there are nematodes that are a real problem for sugar beets. Crop rotation can help, but the eggs of the nematode can survive for several years. But there are certain different plant species that have the ability to wake up the sugar beet nematode eggs, but then not support that pest long enough for it to go through its life cycle and lay more eggs. Thus, by planting the trap crop, the farmer can cause the nematode population to go down faster and be able to come back with sugar beets much sooner in the rotation. But what if it isn't feasible to go years between using a field for a certain crop? For instance, when somebody plants a vineyard or an orchard, the idea is to be able to grow that one crop for 20 or 30 years. There are also special, rare growing environments where you really want to be able to keep growing a certain annual crop as much of the time as possible. There's one common solution in these cases where crop rotation isn't an option. If you wanted to scare people, you could probably describe this as the true frankenfood. The part of the plant that's growing in the ground is different from the part growing above the ground, and they're grafted together, complete with a real Frankenstein-like scar at the union of the two. They can even be two different species, but usually related to some degree. This is actually an ancient practice that farmers figured out thousands of years ago. The idea is you can choose a very hardy kind of plant to make the roots and deal with some of the pests in the soil, but that's usually a plant that doesn't make a desirable fruit. Then you can graft on a much less pest-resistant plant type that makes good fruit, and it's okay because that part of the crop is not exposed to that challenging soil environment. 
The two-plant mix can have other advantages. For instance, modern apple orchards are grown using rootstocks that not only resist or tolerate pests, but also dwarf the above-ground part of the plant so that it can be grown as a low-stature, high-density crop where nobody has to climb ladders to pick the fruit, and it also starts making fruit several years earlier after planting. So, most fruit crops and nut crops are grown on rootstocks, and increasingly, certain annual crops are also being grown on rootstocks. Most of the commercial fresh market tomatoes that are not grown in greenhouses are now on pest-resistant rootstocks. Sometimes you can even find these kind of grafted tomato plants at your neighborhood nursery center. There are also some peppers, eggplants, and cucumbers grown in the field on rootstocks today. Now, it's a lot more expensive for the farmer to buy the grafted plants than to buy seed, but the advantages for pest issues in soil can end up paying the difference in some situations. Now, the farmers that grow many other important crops could never afford to move to greenhouses or buy grafted plants. The economics of that are just totally out of reason for millions of acres of basic grain crops and lots of vegetables. And for those big crops, there are some soil-based pest problems that don't go away with crop rotation. This is particularly true for the sorts of pests that can damage crops at that super vulnerable stage from seed germination to the initial establishment of the seedling. Now, as I mentioned earlier, pests in the soil are hard to control because they're effectively hidden or protected. However, there's one very effective way to protect crop seeds and seedling plants from pests, and it's called seed treatment. Before the seeds are planted, they're coated with chemical and or biological products that will then be exactly where they're most needed. The quantity of chemical or biological can be minuscule on a per acre basis because it isn't being applied to the soil profile as a whole. Sometimes the farmer has the equipment on their planters to do what's called a hopper box treatment, so the seed is treated just before it's planted. In some cases, the grower takes the seed they may have saved back from a previous harvest and they go down to a seed treatment facility. And for the crops where the farmer's buying bagged seed from a seed company, it typically comes with the seed treatment already coated on the seed. Now, these seed treatments are really kind of an insurance policy. If the conditions after planting are really favorable for the plants, they might not have been necessary. The seed might have sprouted and grown quickly enough to get established before any of these fungal pests could cause too much damage. However, if the weather turns a bit too cool or if the soil stays too damp, the seed can rot or most of the seedlings can die. And if that happens, the farmer is going to have to replant the field in order to get any kind of acceptable yield. And not only is that expensive, but every week of delay in getting the crop to grow is a penalty in terms of the final yield. Most farmers today have found that seed treatments are money well spent on a precautionary basis. And again, the total quantity of chemical involved is small, and as with pesticides in general, the products in use today tend to be quite low in toxicity to animals. Seed treatments are also a way to protect the crop in the early part of the growing season, even above the ground. Some of the fungicides and some of the insecticides used are systemic, which means that they can be picked up by the growing roots and then moved to the above-ground part of the plant. For example, powdery mildew or rust diseases of grain crops, like wheat and barley, infect the leaves of those crops. And that disease starts with a few rare infections early in the season, but then each infection generates a bunch of spores that spread in the wind so that more plants are infected it becomes an epidemic. 
By the end of the season, these diseases can seriously damage the crop. With seed treated with a systemic fungicide, the beginning of the epidemic is delayed and it becomes much less of a threat, requiring fewer fungicide sprays or maybe no sprays during the season. Now, earlier I talked about nematodes, the microscopic worms that feed on plant roots. There are biological control agents and certain chemicals that can move from the seed to the young roots to protect them from nematodes, at least in the very early part of the growing season, when that damage is the most problematic. Once a plant's larger, it can often make new roots faster than the nematode can damage them, so the seed treatment sort of provides the bridge of control that's needed to get to that point. And then there's some systemic insecticides that can move from the seed to the roots and up to the leaves of the young plant. And that can really help a crop get going strong. For instance, the crop canola can get hammered early in the season by a pest called a flea beetle. A small amount of seed-applied insecticide can do a better job of controlling that beetle in the early season than even a larger amount of insecticide applied as a spray. To sum it up, seed treatments are an efficient way to deal with bad guy organisms in the soil and also in a safe and effective way to deal with early season bad guys above the ground. So soil is without question one of the most critical resources on earth. But the dirt on in soil is that it can also harbor crop pests. And farmers have been finding workarounds for this situation for a long time. In the special case of certain high value vegetable crops, farmers can avoid soil altogether and use hydroponics in a greenhouse. And that can be an incredibly efficient production system, but it won't ever be feasible for the vast majority of agriculture. So farmers use a variety of other strategies. Farmers rotate crops. They plant trap crops. They use resistant rootstocks. They use highly targeted biological and chemical seed treatments. By doing these things, farmers are making sure that they're making responsible use of their land and growing enough so that there isn't much drive to convert more land to farming to feed the growing global demand for food. You can follow me on Twitter at GrapeDoc, at G-R-A-P-E-D-O-C, and visit my blog at www.popagriculture.com.